All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 12th day of May 2020. Uh, Before I talk more about today's show, I do like to remind you I write a newsletter. It's a weekly and a monthly letter. It's called Turning Hard Times. Actually, that's the name of my show, isn't it? Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks is the name of my newsletter, and I put it out every week, and it's a lot more fun these days because the things that I'm writing about are doing much better. The gold shares are doing very nicely indeed, and a lot of great discoveries being made by these little junior companies. Life is very exciting in this uh, in this sector for sure. I'd uh, also like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling? Go to ChenPicks.com. In addition to the mining and energy sector, and energy sector, of course, is uh, another story these days, but Chen is doing very well in the biotech sector. That's one of his specialties, so you might, uh, if that's of interest, you might want to check out Chen's work, and of course, Michael Oliver's work, his excellent uh, his ex- excellent proprietary technical work, and Michael is with us in a, just a f- few seconds from now. OliverMSA.com is where you need to go to sign up for Michael's work. And, of course, we want to thank you all for listening to the show, making it one of the more uh, frequently listened to shows at the Voice America Business Channel. And uh, also like to encourage you to send along whatever thoughts you might have about our show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And, of course, we, we must thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Today's sponsors are on resources, Ely Gold Re- Royalties, Great Bear Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, and Sitco Gold Corp. Before I talk about today's show, I have a couple of announcements that I'd like to make. First, Great Bear Resources reported some very, very exciting news yesterday on its Dixie project in the Red Lake District of Ontario. It drilled the deepest hole yet, and that intersected the Dixie Limb and Dixie Hinge high-grade zones, which were the first zones discovered on the project a couple of years back. Uh, Drill hole 85 intersected over 19 grams of gold over 19 meters, or about true width of 15 meters. Very good mining width, of course. That same hole also intersected 25.5 grams over a half a meter in the Dixie hinge zones. Now, it seems likely, very possible anyway, very possible that all three zones discovered to date, that is, the very large-scale LP fault, the Dixie limb, and the Dixie hinge, may all coalesce at depth. And if that's the case, then this thing, this stock has much, much further to run, I must say. 
The Dixie Limb zone is now extended to a depth of 740 meters below surface and the Dixie Hinge, 840 meters below surface. Now you start to look at a uh, at a strike length of over five meters at those kind of depths and widths. Uh, we're talking about potentially some very large scale gold mineralization, a multi, multi million ounce gold deposit. So this is certainly one of the most exciting stories that I've covered in a while. Uh, Chris Taylor will be with me in, in several weeks from now to update us on Great Bear. Uh, the second announcement I want to make is that I will be participating on the Virtual Metals Investor Forum taking place in a couple of days from now, May 14th, starting at 9.30 Pacific Time or 12.30 New York Time. My segment will begin at 12 noon Pacific or 3 o'clock New York Time. And the companies that I've invited to be a part of my segment, Calibre Mining, Gold Source Mines, Klondike Gold Corp., Rise Gold Corp., and Premier Gold Mines. My segment will begin, as I say, at 3 p.m. New York time, uh, and I, I will uh, provide my own thoughts about the markets then. Um, uh, to be, uh, and then following that uh, will be 10-minute presentations from those companies I just mentioned. Gwen Preston will be starting uh, that event at 12 noon uh, New York time, and Brian London will round out the show starting at 5.30 New York time. Uh, that's Thursday. Uh, and you can go to jtaylormedia.com, click on the Metals Investor Forum banner there to uh, sign up uh, for this event. It's free of charge, but you do need to sign up to gain access to this virtual event, this virtual event uh, uh, on your computer. So I uh, hope that you'll join me there. Um, I've titled today's show, Will COVID-19 Lead to a Gold Standard? Well, that was after a, an essay written by, uh, by Alistair McLeod a few weeks ago. Alistair, uh, Axel Merck is joining me today, and Michael Oliver are my guests this week. In 2004, Dr. Stephen Roach at Morgan Stanley warned that America was on a collision course as it borrowed excessively from China and Japan to fund its treasury. The collision course that Dr. Roach warned about in 2004 arrived, in my view, only on September of last year, when the repo market interest rates exploded to 10%, revealing what I believe is a bankrupt America. Relating to that event early this year, Alistair was warning of an impending collapse of the existing dollar-centric fiat currency system. And then in the very first quarter of this year, COVID-19 pays the United States a visit, and instantly the largest part of our economy is triggered into what many believe is emerging into a depression, certainly a downturn very much like or perhaps even worse, God forbid, uh, that of the 1930s. For reasons I expect to talk to Alistair about, there will almost certainly be a currency reset in the near future, at least that's what he believes, Uh, but will gold be a part of that new system or will we inherit something even worse or something very much worse than what we have now? say, a digital-based monetary system that can be used by government to completely remove our constitutional rights that we Americans have enjoyed for so many decades. In any event, how will gold perform during this impending depression? It was a financial savior for those who owned gold during the 1930s, thinking about companies like Homestake Mines that went up ninefold while the Dow Jones lost 90% of its value. But how might those uh, gold mining shares or gold itself operate or perform if we're heading into that kind of a decline now, especially if it's this time it could be a hyperinflation instead of a deflationary depression? 
Uh, so those are some of the things we want to ask uh, Alistair about. And in recent days, in recent days, there have been reports of increasing difficulty in securing physical gold by larger investors when they choose to take physical delivery of gold uh, when they liquidate their futures contract. Well, it, it's difficult for smaller investors who wish to take delivery of physical gold. Uh, that is a question you want to ask Axel Merck about his company and what he's providing. Uh, he has an ETF named the Van Eck Merck Gold Trust, and you can simply buy shares in ounce uh, in that trust, O-U-N-Z, trades on the New York Exchange, and you can take delivery of gold behind those ETF shares. You sell the shares and have and get paid in gold instead of, uh, instead of fiat money. So Axel Merck will be with me right after the first commercial break uh, to talk about that product. But right now, I'm really pleased to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Always good to be back. And, you know, I, I should tell our listeners that I like to uh, contact you in the morning of our show and, and say, what would you like to talk about, Michael, and then let you uh, decide what you want to talk about because, frankly, you're looking at a myriad of market, all kinds of markets, markets of, and you have a better sense than many, I think, of how they fit together, how one sector impacts another. So that's why I like to ask you that. And you told me today that uh, for sure you want to talk about the banks, the banking sector. So go ahead, tell us why you why you're concerned about the banking sector. Well, the banking sector, of course, we know collapsed, and it was the scapegoat of the. 2008-2009 collapse and the mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that. And it was financial. Okay, that was where the focus was. And during that time, actually, the banks, on a spread basis, now what is a spread? A spread is a measurement of, let's say, a banking index, banking ETF, measured as a percent of the price level of the S&P. So, you know, it's at a given percent, and if it drops in its percent value relative to the S&P, even if price is going up, but the value drops, the spread is dropping, meaning the valuation of the banks relative to the broad market is dropping. Well, we had a collapse not only in price in banks in 2008, 2009, but in the relative performance. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is while the market turned around in 2009 and went up and the banks also turned up on their price charts, their relative performance never turned back up. In other words, they, mm. it was like a flat tire that stayed flat. So all the valuation, the relative valuation of the banking sector to the broad stock market was deflated in 2008 and never came back on a relative performance basis. And then last year, that spread, if you plot it, and we've plotted it in our reports, moved into all-time new lows versus oh. 2009. So the spread was breaking down well before the virus. Hmm. Okay, so the banks were, were anemic from the start on a relative basis, all during that decade-long bull trend. They, they went up at, at a lesser rate than the market. And then they decided to go sink into new lows on a spread basis late last year, well before the virus again. So now what's going on there? Well, I think it's fairly obvious. It's, it's an issue of debt. And our debt accumulation has been, looks like the bull market. You know, it's a personal debt, corporate debt, government debt. It's just like a skyscraper. And so that's the underlying fundamental problem. And all the virus did is trick a little, uh, pull the scab off that and expose it. Mm -hmm. and, but many of the factors in play here aren't getting the headlines. Uh, it's not talked about much about the banks. In fact, all no. I've heard about banks over the last few months is reassurance from analysts, government spokesmen, 
that fortunately this time around the banks were in better shape before this started than they were in 2008 and 9. I beg to differ. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, so uh, I guess maybe there's some ways you could possibly short the banks, I suppose. Um, well, it, it's, it, it, that's, that's one thing to do, but the other thing is just to be cognizant of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Don't pay attention to the you know the restaurant industry and the hotel industry and Boeing and things like that that are and the airlines and they, pay attention to the banks which you know don't seem to have get the headlines they should be getting the headlines. In fact, if you look overseas to Europe, not only are the banks weak, they're at or below the price lows of mm-hmm. 2009, mm-hmm. including the largest bank in Europe, which is a British bank, but HSBC, but it, it's still the biggest bank in Europe. Uh, it's at the 2009 lows. Mm-hmm. That's oh. like the S&P being at 600 and something. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's going on here? It's not isolated yeah. to one bank either. So yeah. uh, I have a suspicion that, that at some point here, probably soon, we're going to get a jolt in gold. Mm-hmm. And the jolt is going to be of the couple hundred dollar variety, and it happens rapidly. Instead of this incremental arm, strong arm up move we've had, we suddenly get a lightning bolt that takes us to, through the 1920 price hive to the year 2011, where we just come in one morning, goes up $200. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm suspecting that there will be some headline that comes from the sidelines. And mm-hmm. one of those sidelined areas that the people aren't looking at is the banking area. Yeah. And uh, it wouldn't shock me that we come in one morning, there's a headline coming out of Europe or U.S. about some bank, mm-hmm. which suddenly jolts investors into reality about, you know, what's going on here. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, that would uh, cause people to wonder about the security of the existing monetary structure. So that would right. make a lot of sense. Well, Michael, we're just about out of time. I want to ask you about silver because you're also thinking that silver, you're sort of pounding the table mm-hmm. over silver, if I've got you, if I understand you. Well, if you look at a price chart of silver, there was resistance up above 19. Okay, keep that in mind. And I think it's valid. I think if you get there again, you will not stop. I don't think you'll even pause at it. The issue is getting there. And if you look mm-hmm. at the price charts, there was a rally about a month ago that got up above 16, you know, after we had the fake out low. Uh, we rallied back over 16 and halted there. It was the underside of several months of prior action, late, in, late last year and so forth. So the price chart has sold it there, and they backed it off down into the 14s. But last week on our momentum charts, not price, we overcame a major structure on several monthly oscillators at the 1550 and the 1520 level. Of course, silver is now trading around 1570, 1580. Mm-hmm. So I think if silver gets above that rally high we had in price, uh, 1630, about a month ago, I think you're going to jolt up to 19, and I don't think you're going to stop there. I think you'll break out through that stuff. So I think mm-hmm. silver is on edge here of doing what the gold miners have just done, and that is mm-hmm. go vertical and mm-hmm. take out all the highs of the last uh, seven years. Mm-hmm. which is what GDX has done, XAU index. I think silver's on, on the verge of blowing through that stuff as well. All right. Uh, uh, just uh, just very quickly, Michael, with regard to uh, equities, uh, still bearish, the, uh, obviously uh, a big bounce back from the lows, a uh, dead cat bounce there or what? It's, it's largely front-end loaded with, uh, we know, five or six uh, Internet tech stocks. Therefore, it's deceptive. Look at the banks instead. Look at the inter- in- industrial sector instead. Look at a lot of these sectors of the S&P, and you'll see a different picture. We're looking to identify a rollover in the market. We don't think we're going to get a panic in the stock market again. We think the panic mm-hmm. has occurred. We crashed, in other words, in the, the mm-hmm. initial phase of the bear market, like 29. But like in 29, once you rolled over again, 
And it was a, it was a five-month rally, by the way, back then, mm-hmm. before you rolled mm-hmm. over. Uh, it took years, and it was mm-hmm. never a crash after that. It was just a bleed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm suspecting that's what we're in for. It's not an easy decline, but just a constant decline. Oh, but uh, we'll try to time the rollover, and uh, right now we're not there yet in terms of All defining right. the rollover. All right. Well, thank you again, Michael, for your thoughts on some of these key markets. Always refreshing. Well, not always inspiring. A lot of uh, pain ahead, no doubt. But we want to be as ready as we possibly can be for what's uh, for what's heading our way. So thank you for helping us in thank that you. regard, Michael. All right, folks, uh, we do have to go to break. Don't go away. Axel Merck will be with us to talk about an ETF that you can use uh, to own gold and, if you like, take delivery of that gold. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Axel Merck. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Axel Merck. Axel is the President and Chief Investment Officer of Merck Investments, Manager of Merck Funds, founder of the firm bearing his name. Uh, he is uh, an expert on macro trends uh, and uh, the, certainly the gold markets, the precious metals markets. Uh, and uh, today we want to talk to Axel, though, about an ETF that he uh, was instrumental in starting. It's now called the Van Eck Merck Gold Trust ETF. And what's unique about it is that you can actually take a delivery of, uh, of gold bullion if you so desire to do. So uh, thank you for joining me today, Axel. Great to be with you. Really good to have you again. I do want to focus today. We're, we're uh, scheduling you for next week to come back and talk more about the markets about the economy and things that you are, are very well known for. But today I would like to ask you, I would like to, you know, we want to focus on OUNZ, O-U-N-Z, the ETF that you can buy on the New York Stock Exchange. But before we get to that, just give us a quick view of your uh, of gold, what your thoughts are about gold. I can tell you as a, as a veteran in this sector, I can't think of many times that have been, that I've been more bullish. Uh, tell me, tell me that I'm wrong. 
<laughs> well, we can talk for hours about it, I suppose. I mean, gold, ultimately, some people call it a brick that doesn't pay any interest. And yeah. uh, that's one way of looking at it. Um, the gold does well when you don't get compensated for holding fiat currency. And so if real interest rates are high, uh, when Volcker pushed up real rates to the stratosphere, then you don't want to hold gold. But when real interest rates are very low, then it might be attractive, right? Real interest rates is, is nominal rates minus the rate of inflation. So if you think that rates will stay low, but there's a danger of inflation coming, then gold is something that people want. And we, we're going to talk about our ETF. We see whenever the price of gold dips, uh, buying increases, not just now ETF, other ETFs as well, because a lot of people think that there might be inflation at the end of this. And I think we'll expand next week as to why, we, why I happen to agree that that risk is there. And ultimately, the risk matters more than the actual fact, because you buy something in anticipation of something, right? And so I do think that risk is out there. And that's why there's a reason why people may, may want to consider holding gold. Yeah, well, certainly, if you measure the dollar in terms of gold, uh, the dollar has retained its purchasing power. I mean, the, the gold has retained its purchasing power much better than the dollar. I guess you could argue that there has been inflation. And, in fact, I don't know if you know the work of John Williams or not, but John Williams does a different uh, sort of he, – he accounts using – our or he accounts inflation the way it was counted, the same way it was accounted for before uh, John uh, – before uh, President Reagan – uh, and he, you know, he's looking at at rates that actually his his inflation accounting is right lock and step with the with the price of gold. So I think that's very interesting. So it seems like we've had an awful lot of inflation already, Axel. Um, whether the government recognizes it or not, but. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I guess just what you're saying that, is just, it's just, on, just on that very briefly, the, the inflation numbers released today show that this number is just completely bogus. Inflation is supposed to represent average consumption basket, and of course, nobody's average, but nobody was driving a car last month. And so factoring in the plunge in the gasoline prices into our inflation, yeah. and obviously it's done for data consistency, but it's not consumer price inflation, what, what was published today. Oh, for sure. It was down eight-tenths of a percent month over month, I believe, right? Something like that? Yeah. 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 Okay. Crazy. All right. Well, well, next week when we have you back, we can talk more turkey about the, the economy and why things are the way they are uh, and so forth. But let's talk about ounce. It trades on the New York Stock Exchange, O-U-N-Z. Um, so I guess I can go in there and buy ounce, which I've done already, and then hold it as long as I want. And then when I desire to, I can take delivery of the gold that's behind that ounce, behind those shares. Exactly. You can request delivery anytime, any business day, and unlike what others might claim in their products, in our products, it works, and we do it. Uh, we are delivering some gold um, this month, this day. Um, we've done, I think, three in the last couple of weeks of these deliveries. Um, we encourage them, and, uh, and just in the context of what we have right now, as most of your listeners are aware, coins are very difficult to get. And uh, we hold London bars, but you can do a, an exchange into coins. Obviously, you have to pay that premium, but, and we can go into that. But assume now that you want to buy a coin, but it's not available. You can pretty much lock in the price by buying ounce now if you want to, and then take delivery when the production 
um, shortages are, are over, right? And then hopefully there's a lower premium and we can't guarantee what price there will be in the future, but we try to adjust the premium downward um, as, as this comes out, um, as, as the production ramps up. And so you could lock in the price now and then later when the premium is lower, take delivery of the coin. Okay, so you've noticed a higher premium of, of recent days because that would that would coincide with rumors about shortages. Uh, I, I, silver, too, I've noticed. Well, the mints are been, closed. The mints are yeah. closed. I mean, uh, what okay. do you expect, right? Demand is yeah. up and the mints are closed. And, uh, yeah. and we actually recently delivered 100 buffaloes when very few dealers had any of them. That's because we, we also have, if, if, again, we do have the London boss. Anybody can request them. But if, if we, we work with what we call a dealer's dealer who supplies many of the dealers with coins. So they tend to have inventory much longer than anybody else. And so we, we were able to get um, 100 buffaloes out to some within a few days and uh, they're obviously happy premium was high but um, we, we we don't by the way delivery is fast not a profit center so we try to pass along the cost that that we have in in facilitating that um and and so yes it's a it's a possibility yes so london bars how how many ounces are in a london bar it's a big well, yeah, it's the- a big purchase Yes. Now, most most people don't want the London bars because yeah. they are variable in weight, they're variable in purity. You've got to keep them in the in the circle of integrity to uh, in order to have them not reassayed. Um, the the reason why London bars are well, let's t- take a step back. The price of gold is the price of a London bar in London. That's the reference price. Everything else uh-huh. is priced around that, and that's why you talk about a premium, but the, the, the reference point is that London bar in London. That's the institutional trading unit, pretty much, that, that we're trading. But yeah, it's, uh, it's approximately 400 ounces, which is more than most people want to take delivery off. Yeah, yeah well, I think so. Uh, all right, so uh, if I, if, uh, do you then, let's say that I own just say a thousand shares or, or is there a minimum? I mean, do I need to own, what is the, what is the minimum? I mean, does it make any sense to, to order a small, to, to say, just ask for a small number of ounces or, or is there some minimum? I mean, in order to, to Our take minimum delivery. is one ounce of gold, but wow. uh, it is not competitive, so to speak, to take, yeah, sure. take delivery of one ounce because we have, we have to pay the, for the retirement of the shares. We have to pay two of the gold and send it. And so it's much easier to go to a local coin dealer if indeed you want to have one coin. The, the, right. What we're really addressing here is um, if you buy a significant chunk of, of gold, and obviously that's in the eye of the beholder, what significant is um, you've got to store it somewhere somehow. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so we provide an option to provide that. And then one of the things people are not aware of is the mere fact of taking delivery is not a taxable event because you're taking delivery of what you already own. You own the underlying gold. And so you're taking delivery of it and exchanging it into the coins that we offer. The IRS considers an equivalent. And by all means, this is not tax advice. I'm consulted with the CPA and, and, and sure. the prospectus. But that in itself is not a taxable event. And so let's assume that the, the price of gold appreciates. Um, you can then request delivery and you get the coin delivered. And obviously, if you sell the coin one day, you should pay taxes based on your original cost basis. But the taking of the delivery of the, of the gold is not a taxable event. And so that's another reason why this is a very efficient way of, um, of, of storing your gold. How about an IRA? Can you, buy, can, you, can, you do, can you take delivery through an IRA? And then how does the IRS track that, I wonder? 
Yes, so if you take delivery um, in an, first of all, yes, you can hold ounce in an IRA account. Mm-hmm. If you take sure. delivery, the brokers treat it as a distribution. Um, mm-hmm. We don't treat it as such, but the brokers do. So technically, you could send it to, an, uh, to a qualified IRA custodian. We haven't found a broker yet that is capable of doing it, but that's, we can do it. But we, we, the, the brokers just can't facilitate that. So they consider that a, a distribution. And so, so yes, uh, if, if you're young, then, then obviously that, that, would be, that would be a tax event to that extent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So let's say that, just walk us through it then. Um, what do we have to do to take delivery? What, we have to fill out a form or what, what, how do we yes. do it? And, and so, so we, uh, you come to our website, mergold.com, and there's a calculator. You punch in the numbers of shares you have. It tells you how much gold you got. And then mm-hmm. it asks you a few questions um, and uh, where, where you have your account and where do you want your gold delivered to. And uh, we, we check that everything looks fine. Every gold delivery is a little bit different. And uh, there's a fee. You have to transfer the fee. We, quote, unquote, pre-approve it. And then you have to tell your broker, um, here, please submit the shares and uh, please um, here is the pre-approved application. And the, 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 the important thing about our process, which is a very different process, there is one other fellow that, or the ETF that claims to have delivery. We don't, we don't need your driver's license. We don't mm-hmm. need to get your utility bill or blood sample. Um, mm-hmm. We are just an agent. We rely on the fact that you have a relationship with your broker. You're mm-hmm. telling your broker to send the shares. We just check that the number of shares are correct. We check um, that obviously that the gold request you have and can be delivered and so forth. We check that all those things line up. But, um, and then, yes, we do a fraud check, but uh, we're actually not even required to do one, but we do a fraud check, but we do not have to do a, 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 a full analysis mm-hmm. of where you got your, your shares in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a huge difference. We, we have, through that, have a scalable process that even in times of panic, we can process a lot of applications. What would you say, Axel, um, is a sort of a, a reasonable uh, number of ounces to to take delivery on, where the cost isn't really prohibitive? I mean, do you need well, we thousand recently, ounces? We or? recently had somebody. No, we recently had somebody request five ounces. Um, that uh, doesn't I make a lot of sense, say, though, does it? Well, it's, 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 we got the we got the coins, right? Uh, we uh-huh. have access to them. Most of us don't. Um, uh-huh. I would say about twenty ounces is probably yeah. the way I would draw the line personally. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, we've had we've had five ounces, seven ounces, twenty ounces, uh, mm-hmm. twenty to forty to fifty ounces is, is more frequent. Um, sure. But um, but we're not going to tell anybody that they shouldn't exchange five ounces. Sure. Yeah, just that's a calculation that you'd make before you make the purchase or or the uh, exchange. Well, I think that's uh, that's certainly. Where, what website should people go to then? Is it uh, to, yeah, merkgold.com? Um, merkgold.com is the website. It has all the information. Obviously, linked to the prospectus that we encourage you to read, and all that. Otherwise, it trades like the other gold ETFs, except that yeah. we think our product is is one that, unlike some of the other ones, actually works as designed, um, and uh, and uh, it um, it's it's in our view. The way that at least I like to hold my gold, uh, much of it, or most of it anyway, I do have some physical gold as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly a, a practical way of doing it, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Especially um, if you live in the city and you don't have too much too much room to store things. We don't have a big backyard here where we can hide it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and otherwise, you, you need to buy the gun as well to protect it, I suppose, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you uh, very much, Axel, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week to get your insights on the markets, and thank you so much for 
for telling us about Ounce. It's a, a very interesting product, no doubt about it. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks, uh, we're going to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with us. Uh, he's going to talk to us uh, about uh, some of his ideas about uh, what might happen to the monetary system as, um, as we start to experience the stresses and strains of a, new, uh, of a new financial crisis. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer flagship Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete a very active 200,000-meter drill program through to the year 2021. Stay up to date on what's been considered one of the best performing exploration stocks in the last two years by visiting greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod, one of our more frequent guests for sure on this show. And you can and should read what Alistair writes every week, uh, usually on, I think usually on Wednesday or Thursday, they come out at goldmoney.com. Uh, a weekly, very thoughtful, uh, insightful, uh, and not not something that you just get on the surface, but he delves deep into the underlying uh, dynamics that cause markets to do what they do. So that's why we like to have him here to help us gain insights into why things are happening the way they are and uh, in that way try to predict and be ready for things uh, when they take place. Uh, now, there's no way that Alistair could have told us about COVID-19, but uh, he did tell us about uh, some issues in the markets that we should have been aware of, and he's been talking to us about that for months and months now. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. Just always good to have you uh, with your British accent across the pond, giving it to us straight, as any good British would, any, any good Brit would. Um, February 20, 2020, this year, um, you wrote an article, Will COVID-19 lead to a, good, uh, to a, to a gold standard again? Will it, will it do that? Uh, pretty interesting idea, although I must say one that most everybody would turn their nose up to and say that's just ridiculous. Uh, but let's start out. I'd like to start out with uh, in your article you said, and I quote, you you wrote, and I quote, even before the coronavirus sprang up, uh, sprang on us on, even before the coronavirus sprang upon an unprepared China, the credit cycle was already tipping the world into recession. 
The coronavirus makes an existing situation immeasurably worse, shutting down China and disrupting global supply chains to the point where large swaths of global production simply ceases. End of quote. So can you review where the global economy was with regard to the credit cycle that began after uh, 2008 and why even before the coronavirus uh, came upon us, the global economy was heading for trouble? Just go over that with us, if you would, again, please. Yes, Jay. Uh, um, it's long before the coronavirus hit, it was clear that the global economy was stalling. I mean, we saw, in particular, uh, uh, international trade was running into a brick wall. You saw things like, um, uh, you know, freight rates collapsing. Uh, and this was, in a sense, uh, a reaction, if you like, to the trade war that had developed between America and China. And of course, as things cooled down in China as a result of that, then that affected other economies, particularly Germany, whose uh, largest export market is China. So it was a combination of that. And of course, the bankers at that time, having had a long period of uh, relative economic stability, which they were expanding their bank, she their, their bank sheets into, uh, the balance sheets into, I'm sorry, uh, you know, they began to get a bit worried. So you had a combination developing, which I likened rather to the situation in 1929, mm -hmm. of uh, contracting bank credit being threatened at that stage. It hadn't really started but trade tariffs on percent from September to the lows in that October. It was a combination of contracting bank credit and uh, on top of that, a synergistic uh, effect, if you like, of, um, of uh, 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 trade tariffs. And in that case, it was the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. So things were turning down before the coronavirus hit. And of mm -hmm. course, it hit China first, which is when I wrote that article, which was back in February. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so we had so we're so like the 1929 situation, we were in a long credit expansion, and then we had the tariffs. So those two things come together. Like the even without the tariffs, uh, the credit cycle was was nearing its end, right? And that is correct. On, and then you bring on the tariffs, uh, and then uh, I would like to. to uh, to fast forward to September of last year, and you talked fairly extensively on this show about the repo market spike up in rates uh, in, uh, I think, around 10% briefly in 2019 at September. Uh, was, that, was that really a signal to you, Alistair, that things were starting to come unglued at that stage? Yes, it very much was. Um, uh, really what the repo market was telling us was that in spite of uh, the enormous um, quantities of bank reserves on the Fed balance sheet, there was a liquidity crisis in the money markets. And uh, this was reflected, as you, as you said, in a sudden jump in the repo rate. Now, from the Fed's point of view, you know, they don't like having high interest rates. They're trying to keep interest rates suppressed. So they had to come in and, effect, it, and in effect undercut 
the free market when it came to lending through repos. And uh, it was that way by flooding the market with new liquidity through uh, repos, which were typically they were doing sort of 30, 40, 50 billion a day. I mean, these were these were very large numbers. Um, they needed to do that in order to keep the interest rates down because the repo rate is very, very close to the Fed's funds rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, this was it was an interesting time in the sense that um, it, on the day in which the rates spiked up to to uh, BNP, the French bank, uh, that was completed on that day. And so one wonders, and I, there's no evidence for this, but um, other than coincidence, one wonders whether, um, you know, sort of uh, hedge funds and all the rest of it, removing deposits from Deutsche Bank, weren't actually taking them with uh, BNP, but moving them into another bank, creating a shortage for uh, particularly New York. So a problem. And uh, we still haven't got to the bottom of it, but uh, undoubtedly the problem has been made considerably worse by the coronavirus, which basically has stopped payment flows through all the production chains. And those production chains are a lot larger than GDP. I mean, we're looking at the equivalent of gross output, which in the US is $38 trillion on a GDP of about $21 trillion. So, um, you know, and... In effect, uh, the the Fed is now looking to backstop all those production uh, chain payments. And we're talking about an awful lot of inflation, monetary inflation, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, it seems to me, you know, I was just came across a, a paper that Stephen Roach wrote back in 2004, I believe it was. And he was warning the United States, warning about this imbalance, this trade imbalance and warning about, the United States borrowing too much money and relying on the uh, on the kindness of strangers, namely China and Japan, and um, you know he was concerned at that time that that could disrupt the markets over there. But it seems to me, Alistair, correct me if I'm wrong, but 2019, uh, you know, keeping interest rates below the market rates, the the rate that would clear the market, that would that would fetch savings to to meet the demands of the U.S. Treasury. Uh, without doing that, then what we were doing essentially by forcing rates down, we were, uh, you know, we were relying on our banks, uh, our major banks, the um, the ones that make the markets, uh, uh, the primary dealers. They were buying them until they went to they got to the point where their regulatory levels were exceeded, and so uh, the private sector could no longer buy buy treasuries, and so there was nothing left but for the Fed to come in. So I'm wondering, with now with the coronavirus, uh, the massive trillions number, trillions of dollars that are going to be created have already been created, how in the world is that going to be paid for other than inflation by, by printing money? Well, I think uh, you've answered the question in the sense that uh, there are not the savings in the U.S. economy to cover it. And in any event, if the savings were there to cover it, by diverting the savings from providing capital for the private sector, you would be crashing the economy anyway. So the only uh, uh, answer to this, as far as the Fed is concerned, is just to pump new money into the system. But of course, um, as as we've discussed before on 
on your show. When you print money, you've got to look at the other side of the equation and realize that actually what you're doing is you're transferring wealth from one group of people to another group of people, mm -hmm. from uh, savers to uh, borrowers. But more importantly, what you're doing uh, as a central bank is you are uh, transferring wealth from everybody in the private sector in the productive area of the private sector. So we're talking about ordinary people, their salaries. We're also talking about uh, people who have retired, who are living on a fixed income. You're transferring their wealth and their earnings into government, the banks, and the banks, uh, um, if you like, favored customers who tend to be very big business, which of course is why big business supports inflationary policies. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that is that is so economically destructive. Uh, so we have a situation where the Fed claims that it's stimulating the economy by putting more money into it, but actually it is destroying wealth. And uh, redistributing wealth from the people that create it, the middle class, to the, to the people that happen to be privileged either in government or in the banking sector or financial markets or whatever. So the 1% keeps getting richer, and uh, it's just a sad story, no doubt about it. Here's a, uh, I don't know if you know the name Lynn Alden. She's a, uh, an analyst that I, I see from time to time. I've gained a lot of respect for. She uh, pointed out that during the last couple of cycles, credit cycles, um, when the dollar gets stronger is when foreigners cease buying treasuries. They, they, tend, to buy the, uh, they tend to buy treasuries when the dollar gets a lot weaker, she compares it to squirrels that squirrel away nuts for the winter. Uh, do you think that we might see another, if, if the dollar gets really weak, we might see more of these foreigners coming in and buying treasures again, helping to finance uh, the United States living standards? Well, uh, I think we have to uh, separate out um, genuine foreigners from uh, foreigners uh, who are not foreigners, but Americans offshore, as it were. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the insurance funds in places like the Cayman Islands and so on and mm -hmm. so forth, let's put those to one side. Uh -huh. the, prob the problem, I think, with the, what I would call the genuine foreigners, like the Chinese, Japanese, and so on and so forth, is that they will maintain a level of reserves commensurate with the prospects for uh, their export markets and uh -huh. their international trade. Mm -hmm. Now, because that is contracted quite sharply, they don't need to have so much uh, in, in dollars anymore. And if you look at the total investments that they have, I mean, you're looking, these are out of date figures, admittedly, but you're looking at about 19 and a half trillion of securities. And then in terms of short term, and this is less than one year, you're looking at a further five and a half trillion on top of that. So your total is around about 25 trillion dollars worth of securities, we're talking about financial assets and cash uh, in dollars, all in America. So I would argue that they are already overweight in dollars for their requirements, and therefore they're likely to be to be sellers. And uh, we're certainly we certainly have seen the pace of uh, investment in treasuries from foreigners has actually decreased quite significantly over the last 18 months or so. And I think that trend is going to uh, not only continue, but uh, I would expect it to accelerate because I can't see why the foreigners should have so much in the way of, of dollars. And the other thing is that uh, if, if uh, US Treasury yields start rising, which I think is 
uh, is a slam dunk certainty, uh, then at that stage, I think foreigners are going to look at the capital value of their holdings in treasuries and um, either decide not to put any more money in or just as likely, perhaps more likely, to take some money out. So I think the dollar is actually set up for quite a nasty fall uh, as this whole coronavirus uh, problem uh, evolves and people begin to understand some of the uh, effects that all this inflation is likely to cause, particularly mm. rising prices for food. Uh, we're seeing that already. Don't be, don't be um, uh, uh, if you like, sort of cheered at the thought that the CPI is going to fall and therefore yeah. <laughs> they must introduce negative interest rates to counter that. Um, I mean, what really matters at the end of the day is not the CPI, but food prices and uh, the cost of things, the, the, the essentials that people need. And you're talking about people who are now unemployed, newly unemployed who cannot afford to pay higher prices for food. There is going to be genuine hardship as a result of uh, the combination of uh, the global economy turning down, hitting America, and the coronavirus forcing the government to shut down so many of what they call non-essential activities. It's actually a very, very disruptive and unpleasant mix. Uh, indeed, it would be, uh, for sure. I mean, we had an eight-tenths of a percent month-over-month uh, -month decline reported this morning. Uh, but as our previous guest, Axel Merck, said, it just makes no sense at all because food prices and other things are going up. Uh, and, and it's the cost of living rather than the CPI, which is a fictitious number. It makes no sense in terms of most Americans anyway. Um, so I saw today that the Fed is actually – the New York Fed is actually going out and buying ETFs bond ETFs. They said they'll start doing it today, and I noticed a couple of them. Uh, you're quite sure, you, I think I heard you say it's a slam dunk as far as you're concerned, that we're going to see uh, interest rates, bond rates start to rise. Uh, and so what you're telling me is the Fed can't keep that from happening at some point. What would cause that? What would cause them to lose control? Well, I think what would cause them to lose control, I mean, you're, you're right to draw attention to that. The initial effect, what the Fed is doing with these ETFs is they're trying to compress the, uh, the risk premium, if you like, on corporate bonds so that, uh, you know, it's nice, cheap borrowing as far as the, corp yeah. the corporates are concerned. And hopefully market participants will recognize that with the power of the Fed in the market, they needn't have, you know, they needn't worry about the low yields that they're getting on corporate bonds. Um, at some stage, uh, the market attention is going to switch from that to the uh, uh, negative effects of the massive rate of monetary inflation which uh, the Fed has now embarked on. Now, as soon as that happens, you will start seeing the purchasing power of the dollar uh, not only threatened but beginning to fall at an accelerated rate. And when that happens, the only way it can be stopped, uh, and this will probably be reflected in the foreign exchanges to begin with, but the only way it can be stopped is uh, for the Fed to raise interest rates. But there is a problem if the Fed starts raising interest rates. I mean, I noticed today that uh, the uh, budget deficit was something like $738 trillion, uh, billion dollars or something. For, mm -hmm. for the, I don't know whether that was a month or a quarter. I mean, it was a record. It's amount. a really big number, yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no surprises there. But we're going to see even larger numbers uh, uh, coming, coming out because of this. I mean, this has only just started as far as the um, uh, national accounts are concerned. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
you know, you're going to see um, uh, the sort of pressures which are going to be so unwelcome and the Fed will do everything to resist it. It possibly can. Uh, and the pressures that it, it really uh, is uh, trying to stop are rising bond yields for U.S. Treasuries. If that happens, U.S. government finances are dead in the water. So this is why I come back to what John Law did 300 years ago. He was puffing up the stocks of his Banque Royale, which produced the money to puff up the stock, mm -hmm. and also the Mississippi Venture, which he was merging on February the 28th, 1720. Uh, and, you know, like all sort of, uh, you know, uh, puffing operations, this basically ran out of puff. And uh, I think we've got the same problem this time. Mm -hmm. The bad news from the John Law story was that by September uh, 1720, so we're talking within about eight or nine months, the livre, which was John Law's unbacked currency, was completely worthless. Could we have the same happening with uh, the dollar? I think it looks mm -hmm. uh, they're doing exactly the same thing. And I'm I'm very concerned that we're going to have exactly the same outcome. Right. The dollar could collapse completely and very, very rapidly. Yeah, well, you know, we, you, the prospects of, of a hungry population that can't afford to buy food, uh, it's, it won't be just the Fed. It will be the Congress. It will be uh, starting with the Democrats, I suppose, that will be just clamoring already. Nancy Pelosi is doing so, clamoring for more money to be to be pumped into the system. It's helicopter money, uh, and and so then if you start having problems financing and interest rates going up, and the interest rates could just eat this huge multi. What is it? it was twenty two trillion before all this stuff started? Uh, uh, you know, we'll be to thirty, forty, fifty trillion in no time. Uh, you start doing the math, a 1% increase in the uh, in the interest rate, and you're in big, big trouble. So helicopter money. Um, and then, I mean, I think Americans can't really fathom what a hyperinflation is like because we've not been through it. The Germans can a bit. You know, their, yeah. their grandparents will talk about that. But Americans can't. And so they don't see the risk of massive, endless amount of helicopter money. They think that's the answer for everything. We've been taught by Lord Keynes that that's, uh, that's what – is so what happens in a hyperinflationary economy, Alistair, is everything just falls apart, right? Nothing functions anymore. Is that when you get the possible possibility of a return to honest money? Um, well, it's. I, I wish it was so simple. Um, <laughs> we, uh, the assumption there has to be that the politicians, while they recognise at the moment they're not in control of events, that at some stage in the future they can return to sound money and take the actions necessary in terms of government responsibilities, uh, you know, changing the, the law in terms of the government's responsibilities towards welfare so that they become affordable, all these things, because you cannot return to sound money without dealing with government finances. They've got to be reduced to uh, the government, government spending has to be reduced to the lowest possible level. I mean, typically, it's got to be less than 20% of GDP. And so, uh, you know, in order to get there, you've got to have a major revolution in government thinking. I mean, you were pointing out, uh, basically, that, that everybody is in this inflationist you know, inflationary mm -hmm. uh, 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 mind. And we have this problem everywhere in every country. I mean, here, uh, everybody has got their hand out. You know, the government has got to provide. I'm losing my job or I might not have my job. The government has got to provide me with an income. So and I'm sure it's exactly the same in the United States. Yeah, for sure. 
but the government hasn't got the money. It just the only way it can raise it is print it, and uh, so the the inflationary consequences of what's happening are really um, extraordinary. I mean, we have never seen anything like this on a global scale. I mean, individual countries, yes, but on a global scale, this is really major, and uh, um, the the political consequences. Um, I think are uh, uh, enormously um, uh, uh, upsetting. Yes, and not indeed. only that, but I would be very, you know, I mean, just the thought of it for ordinary people is extraordinarily upsetting. And I'm afraid that governments will prolong it by right. trying to stop it. Alistair, we have to leave it go at that. But I'd like to tell our listeners that you wrote an excellent article called Geopolitics Post-COVID-19 at goldmoney.com and another excellent article time to learn about money why that's important these are very important topics that i uh, would really like my listeners to go to goldmoney.com read them from alistair mcleod thank you so much alistair for being with us once again we are out of time it always goes so fast with you uh, all the best to you and uh, we'll hope to have you back again sometime very soon well folks that is all for this week axel merck will be with me again next week lynn alden for the first time market analyst whose uh, work I've really uh, come to enjoy and benefit from will be with me as well. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Oren Resources is an exploration company defined by its aggressive ambition to find the world's largest mines. Oren has raised over $100 million in this effort and believes it is on to three major discoveries at its projects in Canada and Peru. This year, Oren plans to drill Sombrero, where targets have analogous features to the 10th largest copper mine globally. The company also plans to drill its other substantial base and precious metal opportunities that management believes will be complemented by the strongest bull market in commodities over the last 50 years. Visit AURYNresources.com and subscribe to keep up with the busy year ahead.